Hello, welcome back to Anime on the Sea Sky, episode 30. Um, it's been a pretty all-over-the-place kind of Labor Day weekend, considering that I've been able to catch up with a couple of buddies that I haven't seen in several months. Was able to catch up with them, played some video games, went out and got some food, ended up watching a couple of pieces of anime, including re-watching both Made in Abyss and Porco Rosso, one of my favorite Ghibli films, as well as over the weekend getting to see my first live concert in nearly two years. Thankfully, nearly the entire base of people that were going into the live event were fully vaccinated on top of the fact that it was outdoors in one of the major parks down here in Vancouver. And it was honestly everything that I enjoyed and missed, considering I haven't been able to experience any event kind of like that in a very long time. And so it was really fun to go back, listen to some music, catch up with a couple of people, and actually be able to get some semblance of normal in the full vacations of live events. So it was really nice to kind of get back to that kind of um, activity for the first time in a while. But on the anime side of things, I mean, the third My Hero Academia movie is already doing better numbers than both of its predecessors and reaching 2.06 billion, and which sits around 19 million in, U in US bucks, on top of the fact that it was able to break the previous film's record of 1.8 billion. So it's been kind of at least a bit of a better space for My Hero Academia to be in, considering that the anime itself is finally getting into the My Villain Academia arc, which is a long time coming, and I would imagine, considering that the majority of the people consistently repeating, like, word after word, saying, this is going to be better, this is the whole reason why Season 5 is living up to it, there's going to be a lot of reveals, there's going to be a lot of fights, there's going to be a lot of death and destruction and chaos that is going to be reverberated throughout the rest of the seasons that are going to be moving forward, but... It still definitely felt like the amount of work that it actually took to get there, the compromises that had to be made in order for it to actually be fit into the fifth season in general, has definitely kind of ran the entire fanbase ragged a bit, not only the manga viewers, but the first-time uh, anime viewers as well. At least it seems that the third film is getting relatively, like, a modest amount of praise, so it's not necessarily too ambitious and not too out of the ordinary for it to kind of, like, stifle and kind of divide any, like, semblance of fans, where, for better or worse, it's just another My Hero Academia film. And I wouldn't be surprised that the more films that they make, the more chances that they'll be able to top each other, as well as break the records that have been set before them, on top of them being able to be distributed as possibly the longest currently running Shonen to get a regular amount of film appearances, considering that, of course, Demon Slayer has already broken its records and its own set, especially with its first film that ended up coming out several months ago, as well as Jujutsu Kaisen being able to get its first film coming out in December, at least re relating into Japan. So for us, we're probably not going to be able to get that into a Western release until about spring of next year. But my Hero, it's definitely been a bit of an awkward scenario, especially with just the entirety of Season 5 as a whole is just like an entire microchasm of essentially what it's been doing wrong and what essentially the relationship it has between its viewers based on what it's trying to do in terms of prioritize the films, prioritize the money, and prioritize on selling the brand of the series rather than the story itself, which has definitely been a little bit upsetting, especially with how both Seasons 4 and 5 have essentially been taking the weight and the brunt of those kinds of decisions, especially with the developers and the publishers with everything else trying to market it that way, but there's not necessarily much that we as fans can do and essentially wait for that next piece of the product to go out, considering it's still being able to pull in decent numbers, leading into its set of like 300 or so chapters in the manga, as well as going into its fifth season now, and furthermore into its sixth season, which is probably going to be coming out, uh, if, I if I would have to guess, either fall of next year or winter of 23 so we'll have to figure out how that goes and i it definitely 
sounds like I'm not too enthused, which definitely makes sense. But yeah, no, it's kind of weird with the relationship and experience that I have with this series in particular, but only time will tell to see how exactly they keep transitioning this film as it gets more and more popular with its, and on top of it having to come into conflict and battle the popularity of Shonen's other popular series as well. And then essentially shows being put under the weight of their own ambitions. We're getting more and more uh, interviews as well as photos for the new live-action adaptation coming out on Netflix of the original Cowboy Bebop series. I mean, John Cho, the man who is going to be playing Spike, who is nearly going to be turning 50, he's also been thinking about how Spike is equaling the fear that he has about the reaction of everybody going into it, considering that, uh, the like, just worried about being the inevitable comparisons that are going to be bringing up towards it and the original series, which definitely makes sense, because with a series as prolific and popular and widespread and well-known as Cowboy Bebop, it's always going to come into conflict with that kind of identity as what it's going to be not only as a standalone work, but what it essentially is as an adaptation relating to the content that it is going to be adapting going through. It's going to be incredibly difficult to for it to find its own standing and its own legs, especially being compared to a monolith of a series in of itself. And so what fans are going to be looking for, what essentially their priorities are going to be, what their initial reactions are going to be, what they're going to be going through, because we still haven't had any major live footage. We haven't had any trailers, rather just images and photographs of the sets of the characters, of the set design, of the costumes and everything else, trying to have the same kind of energy and feel as the Cowboy Bebop series, but we haven't necessarily been given anything concrete as of late. And because of how passive I am about any of these things... I'm literally just going to have no expectations leading into it. I'm going to watch it regardless, because of course, for it to be a live-action adaptation of a series as monolithic as Cowboy Bebop, I'm definitely going to be able to give it a watch, whether or not I decide to go through a handful of episodes, or if I wait to the end and I decide to marathon it all at once. At the very least, I'll give the first season the time of day and kind of just see how that kind of adaptation is going to translate, especially into more of a Western production. And it's easier for me to just say, oh, you don't necessarily have to worry about the fans' you know, priorities and what their relationship and their opinions are going to be about. The only thing that you can do is the best that you can do, especially when you're dealing with a product such as this. But then, of course, it's they can't really have the same kind of luxury as the rest of us just hoping for something that is a amicable or at least just a good product, considering that live-action adaptations, fans have already been known and have already been experienced and used to it completely falling through the floor and not being able to acquire any of the magic or any of the feel that the original animes have been able to create in the midst of their own productions and their own runs. And of course, we've heard through interviews and all of the lip service where they're trying to be um, as faithful to the original as possible, while also being able to find their own stride and being able to like survive as their own standalone work. But I definitely am not envious of any of the actors, any of the staff, any of the people involved in this production when you're essentially trying to compare yourself to something like Cowboy Bebop, especially trying to adapt that inside any semblance of imagination, just trying to make it satisfying both to newcomers as well as longtime fans. So... I'm still going to keep my expectations low based on essentially like what we've had to deal with in the past, but at this point in time, I can still give them the benefit of the doubt to kind of feel like they're trying to put this passion in a positive light, and hopefully they'll be able to give the rest of us, you know, a way to just still be able to re-experience it in a new light and be able to kind of just come away with a positive outlook and kind of a positive feeling as to the future of adap uh, the future of anime adaptations as a whole. Now, something that ended up coming up, which is an interesting combination to say the least, but is definitely kind of tragic 
and disappointing, but ultimately understandable for a future project that's going to be coming out of Science Saru, is that they're going to be revealing a the Heki, I think, a Heki or Heke story, which is going to be a television adaptation done by none other than uh, Yamada Naoko herself. And this is going to be her first major project outside of Kyoto Animation, where she has essentially been working and molding her craft and just building relationships with not only people inside of work, but inside of the industry as a whole. But the fact that this veteran director is going to be doing something outside of the vein and outside of the production of Kyoto Animation and moving over towards, you know, Saru, which both of them have really good backgrounds, especially when it comes to their productions. But the fact that Yamada Doko is essentially going through on the fact that, that she can't necessarily deal with the trauma that the arson attack left on Kyoto Animation, and the fact that she wouldn't be able to do another piece of work, at least for the near future, back in that original Kyoto Animation studio, is definitely just sad in that same vein. The fact that she wouldn't be able to like create another piece of production, especially within that same vein and within that same social circle and network that she's been able to cultivate over all these years. And she's got good collaborators with her. She's got Reiko Yoshida as the scriptwriter, as well as Kensuke Ushio, who's the music composer. And both of them have done multiple works like leading into Science Saru. But the fact that Science Saru, that now off the back of all, all of their successes, are being revealed to the fact that they're privy to falling to the same pitfalls as the animation industry, overwork, long hours... The fact that nobody inside of their own company can say anything negative about them without the potential of getting sued underneath your own company is just, like, terrifying, to say the least. And the fact that that is their basic response to anything negative coming out publicly about them is definitely more than enough of telling of the higher-ups, like, leading into it. And honestly, one of my favorite directors... Masaki Wasa is taking a leave of absence considering that he stepped down as one of the major key pieces of Science Saru to essentially just have a break with the amount of projects that he's put out over the past, you know, five to six years. It's definitely understandable, but the fact that all of this burnout and all of this negative press is going through is definitely kind of like leaving me a bit concerned, just to, like not as much as I am with MAPPA, but definitely concerned nonetheless because. I definitely, like, held Saru up on a pedestal to that same degree. But the fact that all of this negative press has been going through and just making it reveal that the success has led them down the same horrific path as so many other anime studios set before them, it's definitely kind of concerning to kind of uh, look at the future of what this company is going to be going through. But uh, The Tale of the Heiki is definitely going to be something that I'll check out. It's going to be... No, it's... No, never mind the... The premiere uh, is going to be of a trailer is going to come out September 15th, but it's going to be the anime itself is going to start in January 2022. So another great show to add to the long list of shows that are going to be coming in the winter of 22 for sure. And I guess just kind of pointing out in terms of how a lot of popular manga have definitely been able to get a lot of like positive reviews as well as good notoriety out here in the West, especially on the U.S. Uh, New York Times bestseller list. We're definitely getting to going to a point where the the manga industry is definitely bleeding into and having a lot of good relations as well as finding a lot of decent success in North America and worldwide in general, considering that for in particular, Jujutsu Kaisen is doing well, Demon Slayer 6 volume is doing well, um, sorry, 20, the, th the 23rd, one of the final volumes of Demon Slayer was doing incredibly well, the 6th volume of uh, Chainsaw Man is the one that's going through, and then the 28th volume of My Hero Academia is also going incredibly well, with Jujutsu Kaisen going 2nd, Demon Slayer going 3rd, Chainsaw Man going 4th, and My Hero Academia going ninth on those uh, on the September bestseller lists. 
And at some point in time, I'm definitely going to make it a uh, make it a fact that I'll like jump back and do another manga episode like in the near future. But at this point in time, it's definitely nice to see that these pieces of media are definitely finding like a decent amount of footing, especially like just being in the manga and the comic variant to essentially have that amount of success come their way. And so it's definitely nice to see those um, you know leading the charge in that regard. So recently, at the behest of a buddy of mine, I ended up finally going back and picking up uh, the series Lucky Star. Um, since I ended up trying to watch it back in uh, 2014, I believe, even though it was a series that came out in... Uh, sorry, or at least the anime itself came out in 2007, as it is uh, one of uh, Kyo Animation's like most referential and like frequented uh, works, and whenever it goes back to like the mid-2000s and the early 2000s otaku, whether it was in Japan or even for international um, fans, but I think that's kind of the one that I was going through since this idea kind of popped into my head when I ended up finishing uh, watching the series Genshiken. Kind of in a similar vein in the sense that Genshiken, instead of focusing on high school otaku in the early 2000s like Lucky Star did, Genshiken focuses on the daily lives of college students in the same vein. So otaku in the late 90s, early 2000s, and kind of how their whole persona and their whole hobby kind of translated into the real world. It translated onto how their clubs ran, how their anime circles were going through towards different conventions, how they consumed media, how they bought media, watched it, listened to it, um, how it related to different pieces of their own uh, like hobby sets where it would bleed into video games or it would bleed into film where it would bleed into other pieces of television. All of it was kind of prime for me to kind of like take a look back on what essentially that generation of otaku was. And I guess the easiest way to say it is the otaku that was pre-streaming. The last generation before my kind of generation of people, considering that I ended up getting into anime in of itself in the mid to late uh, set of my high school years. Um, but by that time, streaming uh, and torrenting were already like vastly superior ways to consume all of this media but in particular for us, for free. Until the majority of, you know, we had a lot more pieces of licensing to go through, the fact that we were able to get so many other, like, um, anime distribution websites based on a subscription system where you had Funimation, you had Netflix, you had Crunchyroll, um, like, Amazon came into play, High Dive came into play, Hulu came into play, all of these different avenues. But before that, the, the generation of fans before us didn't have that kind of convenience. Like, we are so spoiled to a degree especially like nowadays like leading into the 2020s and anime being a lot more mainstream where anime in the 2000s is one that is just outside of my expertise considering that it is not a generation that i was able to live through even though i wouldn't be surprised that i would have been able to experience that if i did end up getting into it at an early age because i only knew at the age in, in the mid 2000s where i would have been like nine ten years old i would have only known just um like the popular localized series you know the ones that were made to sell toys in terms of pokemon Yu-Gi-Oh, digimon card captors anything that they would put on four kids any one thing that they would put on um ytv and teletoon and every other of the other pieces of networks but I would imagine fans that were in their late teens, even in their early 20s, that in the only other way that you would have been able to watch any of these series in the early 2000s that weren't in uh, in a case of a physical copy, which in this case would be um, like VHS tapes and CDs, which would have been through television and blocks like Toonami. And Toonami was able to at least cover those on television from 97 to 2008, before it ended up getting cancelled and brought back onto Adult Swim in 2012, but... 
they that was what one of the only avenues that a young fan just getting into the industry it was one of their only ways that they would be able to consume and try and find it considering that the age of uh, information in terms of the internet was still getting onto its legs it wasn't that young but it was still young enough that you were just the emergence of chat rooms uh 2chan blog posts uh, forum sites, and basically all of those were in their infancy and just trying to slowly pick up steam in order f- for anime to connect people on a worldwide scale thanks to the internet just briefly and slowly coming into being. But before then, just like uh, Genshiken as well as Lucky Star, the only major methods that you would have been able to find those would either to be to record through a VCR or to just consume all your media either physically through comics and doujins and everything along the like, or essentially CDs once they finally started uh, coming into place, and DVD box sets would have been able to be the norm to hold, you know, more series and more episodes with uh, less space. Um, But I guess if there was a way for me to start, I guess I'll go through and just kind of go on what Genshiken was, since it was on my to-watch list for a long time, but it was never really a priority until I kind of wanted to get a glimpse about what the more Japanese otaku looked like in the late 90s and the early 2000s, considering that the manga in of itself started in 2002, um, but the anime television series ended up uh, starting in 2004, and getting the first season had 12 episodes, followed by three OVAs, followed by an additional 12 episodes with Genshiken ni Daime, and then as well as getting um, a sequel manga, as well as a second generation, so... You would call it uh, how about 40 episodes of anime and um, how many volumes here? 40 episodes and then 21 volumes of manga in total. And it was a little difficult to get into to start considering that the first season of Genshiken is definitely a tough sell. And there's not really much for me to latch onto considering that the majority of... Because it was definitely a very male-dominated, and it still is, a very male-dominated uh, like pastime and hobby, considering that there was only like one female character. Oh yeah, until you f- we finally ended up getting um, an additional female character in the form of... Kanako Ono, that's who it was. And so we finally ended up getting a more like rounded group, considering that, I guess, at the very base, Genshiken follows a uh, college club or a group of uh, college students with shared hobbies and the trials and tribulations associated with being an otaku in the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, considering that he ends up, our, one of our main uh, characters, Sasahara, ends up going uh, through to university, but, and even though he was kind of a bit on the fringe as an otaku and trying to figure out if this is kind of really the passion that he wants to follow, he ends up losing his inhibitions and guilt once that he once felt towards otaku culture and then slowly becoming a more enthusiastic member and kind of like figuring out where he would be able to take this kind of passion of his. And so it was definitely kind of interesting to see the priorities of the majority of the club and kind of where exactly their specific passions lie, where Ono's, like, follow, where Ono and Tanaka, both of them are able to go through as he as he and she are pretty much like a, a really perfect couple, even though it takes them a while to get that far, as one is a costume designer and the other one is a hardcore cosplayer, as well as the rest of the cast where you have Madarame, who is essentially like the most, not necessarily hyperactive, but he is known for being the second president of the Genshiken as a whole. But then another one of the interesting couples that we have in the series is uh, Kosaka, which is <laughs> really interesting considering that he's a real heavy uh, gamer, especially when it comes to fighting games, and is a hardcore otaku as well. But considering that her his girlfriend, uh, Kasakabe, is just 
like, not attracted at all by the sexual charms of just anime and the entire otaku lifestyle in general, where she still loves her boyfriend, she still loves Kosaka, but it's really tough for her to find any sort of relevance or any sort of, you know, passion, considering that she has no familiarity or no kindness towards the otaku fandom um, as a whole. And so she still ends up joining the club and still having to follow through with a lot of their escapades, but she's kind of like the least otaku set of the rest of it. She still smokes, she drinks, uh, most of her... Uh, Passions rely around fashion, but not in the cosplay sense. And it's really interesting to kind of see, like, how the rest of this dynamic and this group, like, uh, bounces off each other to, like, lead into it. And it definitely felt like the first 12 episodes were a little iffy, considering that the dynamic and just, like, the way the cast kind of, like, bounces off one another, they didn't, it didn't seem too natural for the rest of it, and it didn't really, like, click with me too much, which is why I was really kind of, like, downtrodden to figure out where it's like, no, dude... There are 28 more episodes of the show to watch, and I thought it was just 12 episodes and 30 OVAs, but then realizing that, oh no, there's going to be so much of this for me to go through, and just trying to, like, figure out if there was anything passionate for me to kind of, like, leave behind, but being the kind of completionist that I am, if I'm already 12 episodes into a series, then it's just kind of like, ah, well, if 40 episodes, that's not too big of a time investment, I'll definitely go through. And I definitely started to warm up towards the rest of it as their group definitely starts to go through and expand into the later seasons as we end up getting the self-professed um otaku hater uh ogue where she absolutely hated otaku from the offset but that's more just kind of self-hatred towards herself considering that she is a fujoshi she is into yaoi or in this case male on male um not not incredibly or or not sexually primarily focused but more on the love and relationship between two men and she's never really kind of gotten over that and it isn't until like she's able to join a club that's a lot more like lined up with her uh sensibilities and expertise especially like slowly growing towards a relationship between uh, Sasahara it's definitely nice to see like them kind of come into the fold as well as seeing um in this case uh foreigners as well being able to go through considering that oh no she was originally from, or no, she wasn't originally from America. She is Japanese, but she ended up going to an American school for a number of years uh, before coming back and finishing her degree uh, out in Japan. But she was able to, you know, make a number of friends who end up visiting the rest of uh, the Genshiken Club uh, later on into the series. And so it was, so yeah, I guess that I, the long-winded introduction to all these characters where it's essentially just a college a college Japanese anime club like leading into uh, the early 2000s it was definitely interesting to kind of see where their priorities landed and kind of like how much of a shrine and how uh, much um, of an important specific events definitely go lead onto it which in terms of the Japanese anime lexicon Kamiket summer and winter are without a doubt the two biggest anime conventions in Japan where it is if you've seen this four-pegged, uh, kind of like triangular building surrounded by glass. That is definite. That is the venue that Comiket gets uh, to takes place in every year, and it is a like it is the piece or ground zero of so many pieces of anime culture and history. And the fact that it's the major event that goes through, where you get guests, you get uh, doujin artists, or in this case, fan. Uh, uh, well, like, based on actual copyrighted works and mainstream uh, pieces of anime media, where it's definitely interesting where Japan's copyright system and laws are incredibly fucking tight and still loose to a varying degree, especially when it comes to, like, uh, fan-translated stuff and fan-created pieces of work, where you don't even need any sort of um, 
you know, go ahead or acceptance from any like major show like either Attack on Titan or Code Geass or Sword Online or My Hero Academia, you can make fan translated works and sell them at. You can sell them online. You could sell them through the majority of the uh, pieces and conventions that go through for the rest of uh, the year. It's incredibly easy to get to uh, release these kinds of things, but then it's always a battleground whatever all these characters go through because, like, they go through the theme of Comiket, not only with Lucky Star, but also with um, Genshin as well, even going so far as for the club to essentially self-publish their own piece of work uh, once their kind of drive, like, hits a peak. And so it's definitely interesting to kind of see, like, that kind of perspective inside um, one of the largest conventions, but also through the mind of somebody who would try and undertake, like, something along those lines, considering that you would need uh, to sign up well in advance, you would need to go through and figure out what kind of product you're, you would sell, you would also have to not only finish the product, but also copy it, as well as make several different ways and pieces for it to actually go through, that you would actually be able to make a profit going through and selling everything at it to at least get past the fee. Um, but in terms of their importance and their deification of merchandise and cosplay and the majority of the different pieces that made up the otaku community as a whole, it was definitely interesting to kind of see their importance on, you know, who the director was, essentially how they would be able to uh, make these tapes and how they would be able to not only distribute them, but even be able to, like, get it around and show it to other people in order to convert for the rest of it. Because at least looking through the eyes of Genshiken's college-age students, you, there were still a handful of references that you'd be able to see, even going so far to the sense that um, a completely fictional piece of work that was made inside of the manga would get its own anime adaptation like based, like based off of not necessarily a one-off gag, but essentially the most prominent piece of work inside the Genshin manga, which was definitely interesting to kind of see at the time, like how meta you would be able to go through, where the majority of the trends and the majority of the pieces that would form that kind of uh, piece of work, especially when anime was going into the digital age at that time, it was really interesting to kind of see where that perspective would definitely go. And, and especially when it comes to the 2000s otaku, when you look back over to North America, where you would still be able to find these pieces of work through television, you'd be able to find like uh, different forums and group posts on the internet as it was slowly evolving, uh, but you would still need to either rent or buy several VHS tapes or several CDs at a time just so you could get one particular series. Like, damn, if it was over 24 episodes, then you would have an incredibly difficult time to at least not only accommodate and figure it out, but just buying it in of itself on top of the many other series that you would have to go to. Because I think that was definitely one of the um, biggest inspirations of that kind of group is that you didn't really have a good way to figure out if a show was good or not. You would only have to go through word of mouth, as a lot of us would do, but then you wouldn't be able to find YouTube videos. You wouldn't be able to find, like, different pieces of reviews, whether it would be through online posts or videos or a word of mouth, or you could at least figure out a general consensus and what trends were popular and what shows would have been able to get the majority of the pieces of cosplay or fan arts or fan-made content whenever they would be able to be made at any kind of convention that was laid out. But the fact that you would essentially have to gamble so much money just to put down for a series that would potentially be good, that you had no idea if it was close enough that you would be able to like have an interest in it, especially if it would be going around 24 plus episodes, like the amount of money that you would have to spend on a product like that, let alone the um, the amount of products that you would have to go through before the fan subbing era, would you be able to like, that's definitely the biggest change, especially when it comes to the late 90s, early 2000s to now, where we can still buy DVDs and Blu-rays and subscription services to essentially watch as many shows as we wanted. But the fact that, for me in particular, in the late 2000s, as well as the early 2010s, the internet allowed you to consume all of this content for free. 
And from a click of a button, there was no wait. There was no figuring out what piece of the catalog at your own like Blockbuster or VHS, Video Land, just any other piece or Rogers video, which would have been mine if I ended up getting into like the anime fandom early enough in the early 2000s. The fact that you would be able to just immediately find whatever you're looking for. And because fan subbing was a much larger avenue, the amount of shows that you would be able to like go and consume was limitless. But it's definitely one of the things that I don't necessarily pride myself on, but one of the uh, like nice things about being an anime fan nowadays is that I don't necessarily have to pay too much um, to get the kind of um, series or merchandise that I need, because I'm not really much of a merchandise kind of guy. Like the last two Blu-rays that I ended up like not even buying, I ended up getting as gifts were the Your Name and the In This Quarter of the World Blu-rays. And I can't remember, like, the last time I ended up getting any sort of, like, physical media or physical piece of merchandise, which is definitely more prioritized nowadays, considering that at least physical pieces of media are definitely increasing in popularity and, uh, like, demand nowadays. But the fact that I can go through all of this and not have to break my bank is definitely one of the things that I appreciate and one of the things I definitely don't miss about going back into that kind of generation of fandom, because I would be broke beyond a shadow of a doubt if I had to pay for every piece of media that I would have to consume like like way back when, and it would never come in a bundle, I would have to buy all of those series individually, all those series, all those films, all those OVAs, just the merchandise, the different avenues and pieces that you would have to go through to support your favorite pieces of work were so much more demanding in terms of not only your money, but your time, as well as the amount of effort that you would have to go to even ascertain or find the different pieces of media that you would have had to at least go through. Especially like with the Barney tapes back in the 90s, like just trying to figure out and get the distribution right to try and like figure out a specific kind or a specific series that you were you would be able to hear about but never be able to consume in general because not everything that you would be able to hear about you would be able to consume. Which is why I would have definitely imagined that conventions back in the early 2000s would have definitely been more pieces more important because now that anime is a lot more mainstream and you can have tens to hundreds of thousands of people into specific conventions, like back then in those days, I would be surprised if it would only be like several hundred to like one or two thousand. It was definitely a lot smaller and a lot more, unfortunately, like looked down upon, like even less, even less towards video games, considering that at least with video games, by the time you got to the 2000s, there had been more than enough decades like preceding it that it had actually been able to find a foothold, especially in terms of North America, for it to be not only a specific career path, but also a passion that you would be able to go through and, you know, enjoy without having anybody just looking down on you for liking anything related to that kind of passion. Because yeah, anime definitely didn't have that kind of shift until the 2010s when it started becoming a lot more mainstream and there's so many more avenues that you would be able to consume it and that you'd be able to find so many more people talking about it not only online but just in general and out in public and so i definitely appreciate that now and i definitely appreciate the generation of fans that came before us considering that the amount of you know backlash but not only the amount of time and money and passion that they would actually have to be able to put into this series in general to even get any kind of fulfillment out of this kind of media i can only like just thank and applaud them and I will admit I'm definitely going to have to like apologize to Cookie, considering that one of the reasons why it was tough for me to get into Lucky Star in general was just that the amount of talking on nonchalant and pointless conversations, pointless conversations to the point of K-On, but at least with K-On, I definitely like appreciated a bit more of the musical aspect and kind of like that set of characters. Lucky Star, it really took me a while to, like e even now, even after finishing it, I don't really feel like I could like get into enjoying any of these characters to a degree like just kind of seeing um izumi or konata being like the essentially like blue-haired general otaku of the 2000s 
It was definitely one that I would, I would be able to go through or at least appreciate, but the rest of them were essentially like just archetypes to varying degrees, but not necessarily going out of their way to be anything too special. The one saving grace for me in particular when I was watching Lucky Star would have definitely just been, it is such an overtly referential series, not only just in anime, but in like North American products as well, considering that you'd be able to find stuff like... Um, Star Wars, you'd be able to find like a handful of references leading to like Saw and 24 of all things, but then of course all of the different like pieces of like Japanese media that they would be able to reference and even call back to, like even the magazines like New Type that they would be able to go through and New Types that would even be distributed over through in the States as well, just like getting, even though a lot of them were in Japanese, like just getting a good idea about the series that are going to be coming out that were the closest pieces of information that didn't have as much delay for the rest of the world to catch up on. But then of course you would have, you know, the regular series that uh, Kyoto Animation would go through and reference their own work, especially with Fumofu, as well as Full Metal Panic. So a lot of these uh, different pieces, but then of course you would have like Fate Stay Night and visual novels like Shuffle, but then old action series as well as Berserk, Fist of the North Star, and mecha series like Gundam and Neon Genesis Evangelion. Oh yeah, and, and totally Haruhi. Like if there, the, if there was any like major reference that he would go through, um, Hirano, who is the voice of Haruhi, is the main voice of um, Kon uh, Konata, who is the main blue-haired gal in Lucky Star as well. And so the amount of overt references that they would essentially have to go through and back and forth were definitely uncanny and a little forced at times. But it still ended up, like, doing a really good job, um, like, with not only managing its humor, but also giving a kind of perspective on what a general high schooler, as well as, uh, like, as Konata would feel towards the anime and the medium and the passion that she loved. And in particular, I mean, it was definitely interesting to kind of see references as well as Full Metal Alchemist, as well as, uh, like, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, like, even the 2chan boards that were, like, predominantly used throughout all the messaging in terms of line out in Japan. But it was definitely interesting to kind of go back and forth and see that, but I would, I'm would i pretty sure and remiss that one of the only reasons that I was able to go through and finish Lucky Star in of itself is that now specific streaming services now allow you, if you haven't, like, torrented, you've, you've been able to, like, increase your playback speed on torrents for the longest time, but now, for me in particular, the fact that I'm on specific sites, I'm able to go through and change the stream speed, like, to 1.5 to 1.75 to 2 times the regular speed, I'm sorry, Cookie, that's definitely the only way I would have been able to go through, considering that at least because of the subtitles, you're able to absorb their information a lot quicker. And a lot of the topics that they did go through, and I unfortunately, I would not be able to recommend Lucky Star nowadays, especially with how dated its world and its media and its outlook on otaku and anime was. If you wanted to get a better feel on what essentially that kind of medium was like in the eyes of the Japanese in the late 90s and the early 2000s, the, the only reason I would recommend Genshiken in this case is if you are that interested in going back in time to kind of see what the priorities and the trends and kind of what the medium and the otaku were doing at that specific time frame, that's the only reason I would ever recommend any of Genshiken to anybody because it's if you want to like watch in anime nowadays, like any other like specific anime, this is definitely one that's like rooted in reality. It is more of like a animated television drama based on <laughs> based on otaku than it really is about being an anime generally in of itself. And so it's been really weird to try and figure out a way for me to like incorporate these two series into an episode, but at the very least I can definitely like uh, I just I just wanted to kind of like go through this and kind of like give 
a perspective from somebody who like wants to go back and wants to champion these fans that were essentially like the trendsetters and the uh, like forerunners of all of the fans that we have nowadays. We cannot take these people for granted, especially like if I do end up getting towards an episode at some point in time which focuses on the general North American 80s and early 90s anime fandom, because that would just be... The, the fact that we have any of this, any of this kind of like fan base and medium and mainstream appeal that anime has now, like based on the passion and the time and the effort that the fans of those generations made to essentially have the world in which that we're able to view anime in this way and the fact that that's even possible, like I cannot applaud them enough to essentially like have us be able to experience this kind of genre, not genre, this kind of medium of entertainment and the fact that it's come this far along and the fact that it's been able to go through to this extent is all from their hard work and passion. And someday I'll be able to go through and like properly thank them, but for now I was at least able to get this episode out the door and I'm in the midst of working on um, an Evangelion episode with a buddy of mine, Johnny, and trying to figure out like how we're going to be able to like set multiple recordings and how many episodes we want to kind of deal with. And because it's Evangelion, especially with the final film directed by Hideo Kiyano, 3.0 plus 1.0, like this is, there's not going to be another reason for us to talk about Evangelion ever again. Because this, this was the end of Ava. And I'm pretty sure I talked about this last week or uh, two weeks ago. And I was definitely expecting to have that episode out by now. But just the sheer gravity and weight behind the Evangelion franchise and the fact that this is probably going to be the one time that we'll be able to do it justice in the mainstream, considering that this is probably the best time for anybody to be an anime fan, and this is the best time for anybody to get into the series in general, with the amount of, you know, different... With, with the fact that the original Netflix series is on... <laughs> the original Netflix series, no. The original Evangelion series is on Netflix, as well as all of the rebuild films are now on uh, Amazon Prime. And so, I'll get that out. It's on its way. But for now, I'm hoping that you're able to be satisfied with uh, this rambling episode leading into just what it was to be like an early 2000s um, just anime fan in general and kind of like get a general idea or a window or a perspective, hopefully to give you an interest to kind of like see how it was way back when and try and figure out how the medium itself was able to evolve like this out in the West. But that's about all I can say for now. So cheers. Thanks for listening. Peace. Thank you.